You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. All right, well, I don't remember a lot from high school English, but one book I remember reading was this book called On the Beach by Neville Shute. Anybody have to read that ever? Nobody, okay. Um, <laughs> this is written during the Cold War, 1957, and it, it's a book about, it's a post-apocalyptic book. The missiles have launched, all of the great powers in the northern hemisphere have wiped each other out, and the western hemisphere. Um, the only people that are left alive are the people in Australia. You know, it's not a book about boomerangs and koala bears and things like that. It's, it's a book about these people who know that in less than six months, the, the, the radioactive mess is going to drift down and will kill us too. So we have less than six months to live. And the book explores what is life like on an island knowing we have six months to live, and that's the end of humanity. And it's interesting seeing how some of the characters deal with this fact. You know, some, um, they take a typing class. Some, one couple plants a garden that they know they will never harvest any fruit or vegetables from. Um, some people just go ahead and take their government-issued cyanide pill. The government hands out cyanide pills to everyone for whenever they want to end it. Um, some people are buying sports cars, and there's these, these races down at the, the racetrack where there's f- fatal crashes every single time because people are just thrill-seeking. They're growing as hard as they can because what does it matter? I think it's an interesting book because what it does is it shrinks the window of life to six months and plays it out. But, you know, you could really all say, if this life is all that there is, then we're really not much different than those people. You know, we all have effectively six months to live. How are we going to fill the very short time that we have left? It's all meaningless. However, if there was a way for the characters in that book to, to, to go beyond the end, if there was something past those six months, if there was something they could do to get ready for that, to prepare for that, to invest in what comes next, well, that would have changed everything. And that's essentially what we're going to talk about here tonight. We're going to talk about how, you know, there's really two groups of people in this world. There's the one group of people that thinks that this six, like the characters in that novel, this six-month window is all we've got left. What things will we do to fill that short remaining time? There's another group of people, though, that the Apostle Paul talks about who know that there's something more than this brief brief period ahead of us. And we're going to talk about what lies ahead and why it's so important to keep our focus there what we can do now to relate to what happens there. So, we've been in Philippians 3 for a couple of weeks now, and I remember I said last time, there's a pretty important verse in Philippians chapter 1 that says, God who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We spent a whole week unpacking that at the beginning of our study. What I also said, though, was chapter 3, the entire chapter breaks into three parts pretty neatly, and each part unpacks one part of this verse. We saw in the first part of chapter 3, we talked about the work that God began in our lives. And the Apostle Paul talks about the work God began in his life, and he's talking pretty much in the past tense, what God did in his life. And then, last time we were together in Philippians, we talked about the work that God is presently doing to perfect that work that he began. We saw very much present tense verbs. We saw athletic imagery. We saw running imagery. He talked about, I need to forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. Now, we talk about the final piece. 
He says God will, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now we talk about the day of Christ Jesus. We talk about the final stage. We talk about, we're talking in the future tense tonight. We're talking about when God's work is completed at the return of Christ in these five short verses. So let's read. First of all, he says in 3.17, Paul says, Brethren, brothers and sisters, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. So he says, you have my example of how to live this way, the way that I'm describing here in this chapter. And Paul knew people need examples. They need to see people really living it out. That's one of the great things about following Christ in a community like this is we see all kinds of good examples around us, people at different stages of life who we can kind of see how to follow God from their example. And he says, in addition to our example that you saw when we were with you, there's also a lot of people there. They're also following our example. So you can follow their example too. And he says, really, there's two groups of people. There's the kind who you should imitate. There's the kind who you should follow after, and there's the kind who you should not imitate. And in verses 18 and 19, he tells about the group that we shouldn't imitate. He says, don't imitate the ones who are, he's, he's going to call them earthly-minded. He says, many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So he divides, divides people into two groups, and he says, one of them, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, it sounds like he's being a little black and white here enemies of the cross of Christ, you know? It's like, isn't there like a neutral Switzerland kind of middle position in this whole thing? Can't we be neither for nor against Christ? No, Jesus, he talked in similar kinds of terms. He who is not with me is against me, Jesus said, plain and simple in Matthew 12, 30. The Apostle James puts it this way. He says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There is no middle ground here. Fortunately, Scripture says, while we were enemies, Christ died for us and made it possible for us to be reconciled to God through His Son. Yes, it was God's enemies. It was, it was the enemies of God who Christ came to die for. And that's the good news. And whoever puts their trust in Christ, they can receive forgiveness and they can go from being an enemy of God to being called God's friend. But he says people that, um, you know, he's kind of talking about the people that view this life as all that there is. Enemies of the cross of Christ. The cross points us to the next life. It points us to the resurrection. Some people, they're living for this life, for this world. And Paul says, I tell you even weeping. And isn't it interesting in a book about happiness, a book where Paul talks more about happiness than anywhere else, we find Paul weeping. And is he weeping because of his circumstances and how hard he's got it? No, he's weeping for these people. This is the only time Paul has said to weep in all of his letters. It's the only time he's said to weep because he sees the people who are living life as this life is all that it is, and he feels so sorry for them. He remembers what it was like. He remembers, and he's so sad that they're still stuck in this. You know, you'd think Paul has it bad and the people on the outside have it good, but no, Paul's like, I feel so sad for these people. And why does he feel sad for them? He says four things about them. He says because their end is destruction. And isn't that the way it is in this life? You know, they're headed there in this life. God said from the very beginning of Scripture, when humans turned away from him, a curse fell upon humanity and the entire earth. And he said, to dust you will return. And the dust of death lies upon everything. Everything is in a state of entropy. Everything is winding down. 
Another poem I remember from high school English, actually, was this one called Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. And um, the poem, it's very short, but it tells about a traveler in a desert who he's, co- he's going through this just wasteland, and he comes upon the remains of a statue. And he sees a little pedestal, and he sees parts of two legs kind of sticking up, broken off out of the statue. There's part of the face lying next to it, and that's all that remains even of this statue. And it's clear, you know, the face on the statue just looks like such a tough dictator type looking out on his empire. And then he looks and he kind of dusts off the, the pedestal and he reads it to us. On the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, in despair. So he realizes originally this was a great kingdom by some guy I had never heard of called Ozymandias. He was a king who had conquered other kings. He had built an empire. And as far as the eye could see was the brilliant civilization that he had built. And he said, look on my works in despair. And when it was originally carved, it meant no matter how mighty you are, you could never hope to build a kingdom like mine. Despair, because you could never catch me. But now, hundreds, thousands of years later, it's unclear how, how much time has passed. It has a very different meaning. Anyone who seeks to build up anything in this life, anyone who seeks to build a kingdom, anyone who happens to be mighty, can then look on his works and despair for a very different reason. Because they realize, even though this was an emperor, a king of kings, I've never heard of him. It's completely forgotten. Nothing he did is left. And so the despair is more of, of the despair of reality, which says, like Paul says here, their end is destruction. There's no way they can get around it. If this life is all that there is, the end is destruction. Our sun's going to burn out at some point. Our world is not going to support life. Even if it did, who cares? If you die and just turn back into soil, what does it matter? What does your life mean? Nothing. And that's what he says, nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. That's where we're all headed. That's where everything, all of our accomplishments are headed. And Paul says, I think about people that are living this life, and some of you are living it, and some of you used to live it, and it's so sad. And Paul says, when I really think about it, I weep, because endless joy, endless pleasures are available. If they would just turn to Christ, and yet many will not, many refuse. They're headed there in this life. What's worse is that this life is not all that there is, and if you've not reconciled to Christ, you'll spend eternity apart from Him. You actually won't just return to soil. Your body will, but your spirit lives on with a new body, and that will be lived apart from God in a state, an awful state. As C.S. Lewis says, there's two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, your will be done. The choice is up to you. But the choice will be final at some point. I don't want to see you spend your life apart from God. You're sitting here tonight. You could come to Christ. You could receive Him. You could pass from being an enemy of God to being called a friend of God, the child of God, adopted.
Yeah, and you know, their end is destruction. Some people are like, well, is he talking about the group of false teachers earlier in this chapter who were into religious works but didn't know God? Is he talking about some other group of, you know, pagan Greeks who are just into living it up, the Epicureans? The answer is, well, it applies to both. Without Christ, the end is destruction. The religious and the irreligious, neither of those is good enough. We need relationship with Christ. He also says whose God is their appetite, or literally whose God is their belly. You know, we've all got these desires. We've all got these appetites. You know, some seek sensual pleasure, and we make a God out of that. We pursue that at all costs. Some seek to acquire money and possessions. We have a a strong drive, a desire for that. Some of our appetite is a religious one, the appetite of pride, following the rigors of religion, feeling prestige, recognition. Some seek safety and security. Others, recognition or approval from people. You know, we've all got all kinds of different desires, but the thing they have in common is if we make them our God, they will never satisfy. We all have desires that cannot be satisfied in this world. And if we spend our lives trying to fulfill them, it's like drinking salt water to quench our thirst. Desires were not meant to fill that God-shaped hole in the center of your life. No. We've got these desires, and the reason we have them is because God has put eternity in our hearts, and those desires point us to another world. They show us that I was not designed for this place. I was designed for another place, another world, since nothing in this world can satisfy these desires. You ever wonder why your desires just seem to get stronger and you can never, you just think you've got them and they just, they're back again. That's God communicating. You are made for something more. Jesus said, I am not of this world. And only someone not of this world can satisfy desires that cannot be um, satisfied by this world. Their God is their appetite. And their glory is in their shame. It's like a moral wire has gotten crossed. The things they should be ashamed of, they're really proud of, and they're bragging about it to everyone. Things they should think is good, they heap contempt upon those things. God says, what are those who call good evil and evil good? Couldn't be any more wrong. And uh, Paul says their glory is in their shame. And ultimately, he says they set their minds on earthly things. Remember, these are the earthly-minded. These are the characters from the novel. For the next six months is all there is, so what's the point? I'm just trying to find my own unique way to fill the remaining time that I have. And Paul says, let's not imitate these people. That's not the example we set for you. That's not the way to happiness either. No, no, no. He says, on the other hand, remember, he said, you should follow our example. And why is that? He says, well, because, because our citizenship is in heaven. These are the ones you should imitate, the heavenly-minded Remember, we talked about this. Philippi was a, um, a colony of Rome. We talked about this in Philippians 1. What that meant was its residents lived in Philippi, but they were actually Roman. It's almost as though they lived in Rome, the city of Rome itself. It was a great privilege. They had a different identity. They had different laws. They had different expectations. They had different privileges because their name was on the record in Philippi, the city record. And Paul, we we remember when we talked about this, he said, you know, you guys guys are in a similar position regarding heaven. You know, just like the Philippians are different from the the surrounding culture, 
because they belong to a better place. You Christians, you, sh- you are also different from the surrounding culture because you belong to a better place. You are citizens of heaven, which means your identity is different. Your way of life is different. The expectations, the privileges are different. And so he says our citizenship is in heaven, and so we shouldn't act like the rest of the people around us. We act differently. Our citizenship is in heaven. He says, you have a name written in heaven. He says just a few verses later, your names are in the book of life. And so your name is already in heaven if you're a Christian. Also, if you're a Christian, you have a place, a home, prepared in heaven. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. I'll come again and receive you to myself. And so Jesus is there making the perfect home for you. And this home that he's making, I mean, it makes your dream home look like a nightmare. You know, if there was an Airbnb where we could browse and like kind of click through the heavenly home that Jesus is preparing, what a sight that would be. You know, Paul had been to heaven. He had been there and come back again. And so he had seen what it was like there. And so he had a different perspective than most of us have. You know, this home that he's preparing for us, it's going to fit you so perfectly. It's going to be filled with, with just what you want. You know, it's, when we think of home, some of us don't have very good connotations with home. Some of us do. But this is going to be truly going home, the place that Jesus is preparing for you. You also have friends in heaven eagerly waiting for your arrival. Some of us have Christian friends who've gone on ahead. Some of us, um, you know, there's people up there who, they know who I am, but I've, I've never met them. But they're looking forward to talking to me, I'm sure of that. We know Jesus is there and welcoming us in, embracing us as we come, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And so there's all kinds of um, good stuff waiting for us in heaven. And he says, heaven is from, from where we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He went there to prepare a place for us, and he's going to be coming back, and we're eagerly anticipating that return. And he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. So this incredible power that Jesus had to do something that no human could ever do. How much energy have we spent trying to avoid death? Jesus has the power to raise us from the dead. And it says, it refers to two bodies here. We've got the body of our current humble Um, lowly, kind of down there kind of state, and then we've got the body of His glory. You know, that's referring to the body that He had after He died and resurrected. He had a different kind of body. And what Scripture says is that we will live forever in a embodied state, a bodily existence. And it will be a a body that is similarities to the, the body that Jesus had when He interacted with His disciples in the 40 days after his death and resurrection. I'd like to read several quotes from Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven Tonight, because it's my favorite book on heaven and because I hope that you guys will read it, if not soon, at some point. But he says, The essence of humanity is not just spirit, but spirit joined with body. Your body does not merely house the real you. It's as much a part of you, who you are, as your spirit is. So, you know, this would be like a diagram of you, right? Some of us think you is the spirit, and then we just have a body. No, you is the spirit and the body. That's the biblical worldview. It's both physical and spiritual. We're beings with two parts. 
If the idea seems wrong to us, it's because we've been deeply influenced by Christoplatonism. That's a word he made up for this book. It's, it's Christianity combined with Platonic thought. Plato was a Greek philosopher. He taught spirit's good, physical is bad. And so, the, you know, the idea was like to get rid of the physical and just have the pure spirit. And he's like, unfortunately, a lot of Christians have embraced the same worldview. Physical bad, spirit good. Christoplatonism. From a Christoplatonic perspective, our souls merely occupy our bodies like a hermit crab inhabits a seashell. And our souls could naturally or even ideally live in a disembodied state. Imagine a little hermit crab crawls into a shell, decides to crawl into another shell later. The biblical view of human nature, however, is radically different. Scripture indicates God designed our bodies to be an integral part of our total being. Our physical bodies are an essential aspect of who we are, not just shells for our spirits to inhabit. And death is tragic. It's an abnormal condition because it tears apart what God created and joined together. He intended our bodies to last as long as our souls, but yet what happened when humans turned against God is we see a split between the spirit and the body. And then we see, tragically, bodies buried in the ground and decaying. How sad is that? It's never meant to be that way. Well, those who believe in Platonism or in pre-existing spirits, they see that as natural and desirable. The Bible sees it as unnatural and undesirable. It's bad. It's a bad state to be in, and we're not going to be in it for very long. We are unified beings, and that's why the bodily resurrection of the dead is so vital. And so when we die, let's try to, let's try to summarize this. You know, you've got your spirit and your body, and when you die, the body and spirit are separated, and the body remains on earth decomposing. To dust you will return. So what happens to the spirit? It's not soul sleep. It's not reincarnation. You don't become an angel and like flap around and visit your relatives and stuff. No. If you're a Christian, you depart and be with Christ. If you're not, you go to another place waiting the final judgment. But your spirit is there, temporarily disembodied. You know, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. We saw earlier in Philippians 1, I want to depart and be with Christ. When Christ died, though, something amazing happened. His body and spirit were separated. His body was buried in the tomb. But on the third day, his spirit was joined to a new resurrection body. Just like that. New body, spirit rejoined. And so there you have Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. This guarantees that one day the same thing will happen to all Christians. You know, like Paul says, Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. And so it'll be the same spirit with new hardware. Do you ever get like a new computer? And like on your old computer, all your programs are running really slow. And then you get the new computer, and you load all your stuff on there, and you click open, it's like, and you're like, Wow. That's a lot faster than the old hardware. That's what it's basically like. There's some analogies to our our resurrection state. It's like the same software, but totally new hardware that's a lot faster. That's a lot more able to run the programs. And so this transformation, this glorious transformation, the great transformation, 
is what we're looking forward to. This is what gives meaning to our present existence. This is the difference between just trying to find some way to distract us during the remaining time we have on earth and building on something that will last for eternity and something that will only get better. This glorious transformation. Let's spend the rest of our time talking about this. The truth is the best parts of our old life are going to carry over according to the principle of continuity. You will still be you. Some of us might not have known that. I didn't, I didn't realize that at one point. Alcorn says, though, you will be you in heaven. I mean, who else would you be? If Bob, a man on earth, is no longer Bob when he gets to heaven, then in fact, Bob did not go to heaven. If when I, when I arrive in heaven, I'm not the same person with the same identity, history, and memory, then I didn't go to heaven. The resurrected Jesus did not become someone else. He remained who he was before his resurrection. He says, it is I, myself. Yeah, he wasn't like, who are you guys? Like some amnesia patients. Like somebody that's had his memory wiped. No, he knew, he remembered. But his body was different. Yeah, you will still be you. Your relationships and memories, those will carry over as well. The fact that Jesus picked up his relationships where they left off is a foretaste of our own lives after we are resurrected. The notion that relationships with family and friends will be lost in heaven, though common, is unbiblical. It completely contradicts Paul's intense anticipation of being with the Thessalonians. He says, I can't wait until we get to heaven and I stand there with you guys in the presence of Christ. He also encourages the Thessalonians to look forward to rejoining their loved ones in heaven. He says, we will be reunited with them, and we'll be with Christ together forever. Perhaps you're disappointed you never had the friendships you long for. In heaven, you'll have much closer relationships with some people you now know, but it's also true that you may never have met the closest friends you'll ever have. Yeah, you know, some people, they're not, it's not until age 40 or 50 that they meet, you know, their best friend. Well, maybe it's that we're living in heaven for hundreds of years before we might finally meet the person who's going to become like our best friend. And I don't know if you guys ever feel this way, like, just kind of disappointed, like, I want more from these relationships, and I just, I feel like I can't get there. There's always something in the way. I'm in the way. Those are going to be gone. Those blocks will be gone. Relationships, which are honestly incredible. We can have incredibly close relationships, deep love relationships in this world. It's nothing compared to what heaven's going to be like in these resurrection bodies because we'll carry over everything and then we'll get to do it with the new hardware. We'll get to do, it, we'll get to do relationships without fallen bodies, without sin in a perfect world. Your racial identity and language. It says in Revelations multiple times, it says, I looked out and I saw countless multitudes from every people and tribe and tongue and nation. And so you will see people of every ethnicity there. Racial identities will be preserved. And racial unity will finally be possible in a way we can't have here. Don't seem to be able to get here in this, in this world. Although I think in the body of Christ we can get, get a, a pretty long way in that. Languages... I hope to learn some new languages. 
But it looks like we'll come in speaking our language that we know here, and we'll build on that. I just can't emphasize enough, a real physical body in a real physical place. That's what we're looking at here. This is real. This is physical. We're not floating spirits on a cloud strumming a ghost harp. No, we're on like solid ground in a solid world, but a world that makes an earth that has some relation to this, but it makes this one look like nothing. I mean, there will be continuity in the new world. You, you'll be recognizable. People recognize Jesus. He says you'll recognize Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and, but it'll still be different as well. There will be some awesome new parts here. Ability to relate perfectly to other unfallen humans. Yeah, I mean, how, how sweet this would be. We've become sinful versions of what God intended. Your deceitfulness, laziness, your lust, your deafness, disability, and disease, that's not the real you. They're temporary perversions. They will be eliminated to see the real you. They're the cancer the great physician will surgically remove such that never again will they return. When you're on the new earth for the first time, you will finally be the person God created you to be. Praise God. One of the greatest things about heaven, we'll no longer have to battle our desires. They'll always be pure, attending to their proper objects. We'll enjoy food without gluttony and eating disorders. We'll express admiration and affection without lust or fornication or betrayal. Those things simply won't exist. Yeah, the desires, it's like sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad, sometimes they're mixed. It gets pretty old. Get kind of tired of it. I don't have to worry about that in the new body, in the new earth. Desire is actually an essential part of humanity. It's a part that God built into people before sin cast its dark shadow on earth. And Christianity, I don't know if you know this, it's unique in the perspective on desires. Our desires will be purified and fulfilled in the new earth. You look at a religion like Buddhism. They teach one day people's desires will be eliminated, and that's, that's deliverance. That's kind of like the afterlife in Buddhism, the elimination of desire. That's not the, the biblical afterlife. That's radically different. Jesus takes away our sins while redeeming our desires. The desires will finally flow strong and pure in a way that they don't here and now in this body of our humble state. There'll be the restoration of broken relationships. There are some relationships that they get so broken in this life, you, you kind of are like, you know, that one might just have to wait till the next life. Uh, sometimes it's because the person passed away. They were a Christian, but they passed away before the relationship was really able to heal. Sometimes it's like, well, the more I try to fix it, the more I seem to break it. <laughs> and um, we don't really have the time or the context to fix this thing. But you know what? That's going to be really interesting working this thing out in the, new, in the new earth with new bodies. We'll see everything clearly, including ourselves. We'll see the past clearly. Our memories will be cleared up. And this will be a time of reunion. A time of healing that, in some cases, just ain't going to happen here. Physical disabilities will be healed. Some of you 
this really means a lot to, to you, more to you than to others of us. Johnny Erickson Tata writes in her book, Heaven, she's a quadriplegic. She writes from a wheelchair, I can still hardly believe it. I with shriveled bent fingers, atrophied muscled, gnarled knees, no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light and bright and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone who's spinal cord injured like me, or someone who's cerebral palsied, brain injured, or who has multiple sclerosis? Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. All physical and mental disabilities will be completely healed in the new earth, in these new bodies. New capacity to enjoy God's creation. Think about our five senses. First Cor 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard. It hasn't even entered into the heart of humans what God has in store for those who love Him. You know, you don't even know what eyeballs are made for. You've never seen it until you sit there with your redeemed eyeballs looking at a redeemed world. You know, what will they be like? We know there's waves of light we can't see, like ultraviolet light. We can't see it. We know it's real. Will our eyes have filters like, like Google Maps where you can kind of click and see different layers? Will there be new colors on the spectrum we can't see? Can we focus on multiple things at once instead of just here or there? Will we be able to see for miles the eyes of a hawk? Will we have telescope eyes and microscope eyes? I really wonder. Or our nostrils. It's like, will we, will we have this, the sense of a dog where we can like smell our favorite flower a mile away and track it down? The most incredible smells on earth will seem like dull, muted sensations compared to redeemed nostrils in a redeemed world, or taste buds, redeemed taste buds in a, re in a redeemed world, the best meals on earth, that's nothing compared to what will be eaten there. I think God's looking forward to this as well. He's excited to see our faces light up. I wanted to share a story about a um, daughter of a friend of ours. Her name's Avery. This is a picture of Avery at six months old. You can tell she's having a pretty bad day. Unhappy, crying, her eyes out. Um, <clears throat> these are, this is a clip from a video of Avery. And Avery, this is actually a big day for Avery. But she's had a pretty rough life for the first six months. She, um, when she was still in the womb, she had a stroke. And it damaged her pretty bad. Damaged her hearing severely. When she was born, there were several things wrong with her, but one of them was um, her hearing was almost completely gone. All she could hear was very faint, muffled sounds. You know, she could kind of see her mom and dad looking at her, but all she heard was mumbles coming out of their mouth. But at six months old, she had a surgery to get cochlear implants in both ears. You can kind of see it on her left ear there. And this was the day where they were finally going to turn them on. And the video's great. It's dad's holding the video, and the mom is holding Avery. And she's crying and crying and crying, and the doctor reaches over and turns him on, and mom starts saying, hi, hi, Avery. And she first looks up at mom like this. The crying stops immediately. 
and she suddenly sees Hannah's face, and she sees this, this face who's been mumbling something to her for all these months, and obviously a face that loves her, but now she hears voice loud and clear. And her dad, Jake, is holding the camera, and then at a certain point he goes, Hi, Avery. And then she looks at the camera like this. <laughs> and uh, it's the sweetest video, you know. She's just standing there touching the face of her mother, a face she has seen, but she had no idea the, the level of communication. What could be expressed with words that before she could only hear dimly, like through a, you know, a, a, a pool or something like that. Now she hears loud and clear. She hears her name for the first time spoken. And she's so happy. There's no more crying here in this video. She's so happy to, to communicate with her parents. But, you know, what, what also sticks out to me from this video is not just how happy Avery is, but how happy her mom and dad are. And I think that's what it's going to be like for God when all of a sudden our senses are heightened, are repaired, and we start to see just all that he's made. I mean, think about every time we come up with a new microscope, we're like, whoa, that was in there? A new telescope, we're like, wow, look at that galaxy. And we're going to see clearly what he has made, and we're also going to hear his voice and see his face. And as our faces light up, his face will light up even more. That's going to be a good day. There will be eating and drinking. He refers to the feast. We see Jesus eating after his resurrection. It's not clear we'll need to eat. We might just eat because we like to, because we like the taste. There will be emotions. Jesus promises in Luke 6, 21, he says, you will laugh because behold, great is your reward in heaven. Enter into the happiness of your master, he says in Matthew 25. We see learning. We see books. There, we know there's books in heaven. You know, David writes in the Psalms, he says, God, you keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. And to sit down with God and to look through the history books of our life from his perspective, for him to explain, this, this is what was happening during this hard time in your life. I saw those tears. I saw the sorrows. And for him to explain what he was really doing, for him to explain a new perspective on that situation. We'll see technology and new modes of travel, perhaps. I definitely believe there will be technology in heaven. We, we see the descriptions of, of buildings. We see um, fabulous new road paving technology in the new, the new city that's, that we, is described there in Revelation. We see Jesus able to just teleport in his resurrection body. I don't know if we'll have that ability. It, that might be like a manifestation of his omnipresence where he could be different places at once, but it might be that we can travel at the speed of light or perhaps the speed of thought. It might be that all the, the technology only dreamed about in sci-fi literature and movies will finally we'll have the time to develop it because we're going to have an eternity with brilliant minds that never forget anything. And perfect teamwork. Storytelling, art, entertainment, sports. Why wouldn't there be sports in heaven? Is there something sinful about sports? No. It's going to be awesome. And we're going to enjoy God's creation, His physical creation, in a way that, we, that what we enjoy now is only a taste. 
And what there will be none of is death or regrets. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And then the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. The renewal of all things, including our bodies. All the sorrows, all the regrets, there will be one final comforting of God. And we will put all that behind us. And we will forget what lies behind. And we will just be so excited about what's here now. It's no longer what lies ahead. It's what here, what's here now, plus all the possibilities of where we can go from here. This is truly life as it was intended to be. You know, we call this the life and that the afterlife. It'd probably be more accurate to call this the before life and that life. Yes, you know, the greatest day on this earth. That's going to be pretty normal in, in, in heaven. That's going to be normal on the new earth. Yeah, you know, the sad part is, and what, what causes Paul to weep, is this, this life is broken and so are our bodies. And what's so sad to him is there's people that think that this is the, as good as it gets. You know, people sit around longing for the good old days. We don't have to do that. The good old days are always ahead of us as Christians. Yeah, I've had some great days. I hope to have many more in this life. But I know the best days are what's ahead. And so we can sit there, you know, old, you know, our bodies are completely broken down. We're sitting there in a, you know, some sort of home for old people. And we don't have to sit there bitter and thinking my life is behind me. No, life is ahead. Life is always ahead for the Christian. Because the new world always lies ahead. New bodies always lie ahead. And we eagerly wait for our Savior who will transform the body of this humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. Yeah, God offers hope. And I just, I gotta, I gotta just plead with you, don't miss out on this transformation, the great, glorious transformation that lies ahead. You can get in on it. You can guarantee your place in that tonight. Yes, Lord, we're thankful that if we're believers in Christ, we can say confidently our citizenship is in heaven. We know where we're headed. We don't have to come up with ways to kill time on this meaningless life, but our lives are full of meaning because there's continuity between this life and the next, God. And you're going to take all the best parts of this life and they're going to, they're going to make it over to the next life. All the worst parts, you're going to do away with those. You're going to make us new. We can't even imagine the, the things you've got stored up for us there, Lord. The surprises you have, God, what we'll see, what we'll finally experience, and ultimately, seeing you unhindered is something I so look forward to, God. And um, I, I just pray for people here tonight who've never, who've never even met you personally, God, that they would, they would call out to you. They would tell you that they're not they're not finding satisfaction in, in the things of this world and that they would want to know your son who is not of this world and who can satisfy those desires that they've always had that point them to you. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.